Now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And we went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the front gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took a seat on the rostrum, and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Please pray with me once again. 
Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing, including even reading your word. But Spirit, unless you work in our hearts and, and even give us illumination to understand your scriptures, Lord, this, this could easily be just a waste of time. And that's not, that's the last thing we want. Lord, we know that, that we need to continue to have our minds be uh, conformed to your word. We need to be transformed. Lord, we, we quickly uh, fall into deception and error and folly. And we need to, to, to be reminded of what is true, what is real. And so we pray for your grace to assist us now to, to understand your word so it would strengthen us when we face temptation. Lord, when we face discouragement, when we face fear and anxiety, that we, we could have your word sealed upon our hearts. And I pray that that's what you do today, that what, what is taught in your word would be understood and, and would be remembered by all of us. So that as we face temptation, we may hold fast and glorify you in the evil day. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, from the beginning of the church, as we've been reading in the book of Acts, the church has faced violent opposition. It began uh, just in the first few chapters when the Jewish leaders opposed Christ and demonstrated their opposition by imprisoning the apostles and threatening them. Later in chapter 5, the apostles are again captured, threatened, and this time they're actually flogged. And of course, in chapter 7, after Stephen's speech, Saul gets the approval from the council to have Stephen stoned. And Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. But Saul didn't stop there. He continued his murderous rampage, says breathing threats of violence all the way to Damascus. And he would have continued his violence had not the Lord personally come to him and spoke to him and asked the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't so much angry with Christians, as we see there, as much as he was persecuting Christ. Saul was at war with Christ. And really, the reason that the church faces all this opposition that we've seen is not because the church is rebellious or evil or doing injustice. It's because... They're followers of Christ. As Jesus told his disciples in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He even says in Luke 21, 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. All people will be opposed to you because you follow me. So the reason the church has been violently persecuted across the globe for 2,000 years is because there's a very real war taking place between Christ and Satan. And Satan and his minions resort to violence and injustice in their fight, whereas the servants of Christ resort to preaching and to prayer. 
And this whole chapter really is about Herod's battle with Christ. And despite the violence and the injustice that we, that we see really throughout the chapter, the chapter is actually very humorous. In fact, it's, it's arguably the funniest, most humorous chapter in all of Scripture, I would say, with all its ironic events and verbal turns of phrase. I'll try to draw those things out for you as we go through it. But there's a very purposeful theological point being made with all of this humor. And that's to show the ridiculousness of thinking that you can fight against God and win. It's not only unwise, it's foolish and stupid because you're guaranteed to lose. And there are three parts to this narrative. It begins with Herod seeking to kill James and Peter. And then Peter, of course, is rescued by an angel from the clutches of Herod. And then in the third part, Herod is then killed by an angel. Almost a complete reversal of how things start. Let's look first of all at Herod's seeking to kill James and Peter, beginning in verse 1. The chapter begins by noting that Herod, who was king of the Jews, decided to attack the church. Now this isn't the same Herod that sought to kill the infant Christ and slaughtered all the, the babies of Bethlehem. That was Herod's grandfather. Nor was this the Herod who killed John the Baptist and later, uh, during Christ's trial, mocked him before sending him on to Pilate again. That was his uncle. This man is Herod Agrippa. He was actually one of the personal friends to some of the wickedest emperors the Roman Empire ever had. Men like Caligula and Nero. And when he saw that his violence against the church would please the Jews, he had James, the son of Ebedee, Zebedee, sorry, executed. And when he thought that that really did please the Jews, he went and decided to capture Peter as well, intending to kill him. But he, he doesn't choose to have him executed right away because it says it's during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and he doesn't want to risk offending the Jews by having somebody executed during this Holy Week. So he decides to wait until Passover is ended. And Herod goes out of his way to make sure that there's no way that Peter can escape. It says he delivered him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers. Not four soldiers, four squads of soldiers. It's ridiculously over-the-top security for a man who's not even a dangerous threat. He's not a notorious assassin or soldier. He's simply just a a gospel-preaching fisherman. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Again, while, while Herod's resorting to injustice and violence, the church takes up its warfare by turning to the Lord in prayer. And as we'll see things play out, prayer here is by far the, the more effective tactic or strategy in this spiritual war. Peter will be miraculously released from this seemingly impossible situation because the church is making fervent prayer for him. The, the, the effect comes from a cause. Fervent prayer. The word fervently 
means that they were, they were putting all of their effort into it. The word actually comes from, from the games when a, when a runner was reaching uh, in the final stretch, would, would reach out with all of its, his might, his exertion as he crosses the finish line, stretching himself to his, the greatest of his ability at that time. They were desperate. I mean, you have to remember that James had just been truly executed, one of the leaders in the church. And now Peter, foreseeably, is going to suffer the same fate. And so they're desperate, pleading that God would preserve their leaders. And notice that it wasn't just individuals praying on their own. The church had gathered together for prayer. And that's actually what they're doing in verse 12 when God actually answers their prayer and Peter shows up in their midst. When people are really desperate, they will pray. They're not, they're not just going to tell people they're praying. They're not just going to request prayer. They're going to make sure prayer takes place. And they'll gather with others and plead with God together because together they are desperate to see God answer their needs, their requests. In order to, to put power behind any sort of request, it's natural for people to gather together. Uh, for instance, if, if uh, when the children might gather together out of concern for, for an aged parent who's been sick, and they plead together with their aged parent to finally go see a, a physician. Or activists will gather signatures for a petition to present before legislators, kind of a a, a, a form of saying all of these people together want you to make this change. It's not just me requesting it, but these hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are requesting that you make this change. And they're all here together on this piece of paper. Or teams will gather together. Uh, maybe have their, their, their captains leave, but, if, it, but if, there's a, if there's a concern that they're having with the team or with the coach, they'll gather together and present their petition for change together. And the point is, when people really feel desperate, they gather together to put power, emphasis behind their requests. Now, if, if only a fraction, however, show up, <laughs> the opposite tends to have the effect. I mean, imagine it, for instance, our founding fathers gathering in Independence Hall a couple hundred years ago, and they put together the Declaration of Independence and sign it with five signatures. Ten percent of the 56. And they present that. I mean, that honestly would just be, it would seem like a joke. Both to the people as well as to the King of England. Because the other 56 members, or 51 members of the Continental Congress, had more important things to do that evening. It would have the opposite effect. And really, I say that because the percentage of people that gather to bring a request does communicate how strongly people feel, how much they want these requests to be answered. And when we gather together to pray as a church, it communicates to God that as a church, His glory really is our greatest desire. We really want to see Him bring souls to faith in Christ in this region. We really want to see Him grow us up into maturity as individuals and as a church. 
And, and that His glory really does mean more to us than anything else that we could do with our time. It puts weight behind the request. And this early church really cared about Peter's situation. So they prayed together and notice, God answered the prayer in a very miraculous fashion. Look at verse 6. As it begins to reiterate how Herod lost Peter with the intercession of an angel. Verse 6 reiterates Peter's helpless condition. He was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. So, so he is tied down tight. He's super secure. Breaking him out uh, would be a challenge even for Ethan Hunt or Ocean's Eleven. I mean, there, there's no way he's going to be to escape, even with the greatest team putting together the greatest escape plan. But it's not so difficult for an angel of the Lord. In fact, that point is actually made in verse 7. Behold, an angel, that is one angel, out of myriads and myriads, God just sends one angel. He suddenly appears, he speaks, and suddenly the chains fell right off of Peter's hands. I mean, what would have taken a team of Navy SEALs something, planning and skill and effort to accomplish, was easily accomplished by an angel in just a matter of minutes. And we should also notice that all the effort that Peter puts into his escape, right? again, this is on the night that he's about to be executed, and he's not even praying. He's asleep. Now, it strikes me that Peter sleeps a lot. Honestly, I think there's more record of Peter sleeping in Scripture than anybody else. Uh, for instance, uh, right before the transfiguration, the disciples were sleeping, he and James and John. Then, of course, in Gethsemane, he, he couldn't stay awake. He fell asleep. Uh, right before, a couple chapters earlier, before he received this vision of Cornelius, he had fallen asleep. And, of course, here. And Peter doesn't even wake up when the angel comes in with this blinding light. He has to be struck in the ribs. He, and, and notice he's, he's not even dressed. The angel has to instruct him to put on his clothes. I mean, the point is it's hardly a picture of valor. Peter doesn't even know what's going on. He's laying there, bleary-eyed, in his skivvies, wondering what is going on. And even after he wakes up, he's so bleary, he doesn't even realize that what he's going on is real. He thinks he's having a vision. And he doesn't realize that it is real until he's out of the prison, past the gate, and the angel has left him. And this is, this is the point. The point of the section is made in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That's the point. Herod's lost. He just sent one angel. Peter was safe. And again, this was because the church had gathered together to pray for him. Look at verse 12. 
When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Again, his emphasis on prayer. And so Peter shows up and begins knocking on the gate. And the servant girl, Rhoda, answers. And recognizing his voice, she runs back to tell the others. But Peter's left standing there. And the humor of the situation is even more pronounced when you recall what it says in verse 10. The text says that Peter was able to waltz out of the prison and through the iron gate that leads to the city. But when he gets to this wicket gate at Mark's house, he has to stand there and keep pounding until his friends are willing to let him in. I mean, he's able to escape from prison and a locked gate that opens on its own, I might add. But he can't even get into his friend's house. And notice also in verse 15 how the church members accuse Rhoda of being out of her mind. The word there is mine, from which we get the word mania or maniacal. They say, she's mad, you're mad. In fact, it's the word, um, I want to say, uh, when, when they actually see Peter in verse 16, notice it says they were amazed. And that word is often translated to be out of one's mind. In fact, that's actually the, the way Paul uh, uses the word when he describes having a vision or an ecstatic experience in 2 Corinthians 5.13. Uh, it can be translated to be beside oneself. Which, of course, this is what Peter thinks is going on with him. Notice it even says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself. So just to put this all together, Peter thinks he's out of his mind. Rhoda is being accused of being out of her mind by the Christians. And then the Christians actually lose their mind, so to speak, when they see Peter in verse 16. I mean, nobody's in their right mind. But God is still at work. And that the church realizes it's actually Peter, and they, they're standing there stunned by God's miraculous to answer their prayers. Notice, notice what Peter says to them. And this is all he says to them. Verse 17. But motioning to him with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Peter points their attention in all this escape to the power and glory of God. Notice he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. He points to God's greatness and power. He doesn't boast of the fact that he had just shook the fuzz. He points to God and he exhorts them just just to pass this very same message along to James and the brethren. And the verbiage here is important. Right? Recall that in verse 2, Herod tried to destroy the church by executing the church's leader, James, the brother of John. Here the attempt is reversed. As Peter seeks to strengthen the church, he does so by saying, share these things to James and the brethren about what the Lord had done. And the point is that you can't kill Christ's church. In seeking to harm her, you only make her stronger. You kill one leader, James, and another James rises up to take his place. And he and his brothers will therefore continue the fight. In fact, one of the, the most famous stories of uh, 
ancient Rome is about a man named Gaius Mucius. A year after the founding of the Roman Republic, uh, the Republic was in danger of, of falling. Again, it's only a year old. And it was being destroyed by a Clusian king named Lars Porsena. And so in order to save his nation, Gaius Mucius decides to sneak into the Clusian camp to assassinate Lars Porsena. But because he didn't know what the man looked like, he actually ended up killing the wrong man. He ended up killing the king's secretary. And he was immediately captured and brought before the furious Lars Porsena who asked him who, who he thinks he was that he would dare to strike his right-hand man. And this is Gaius' response as recorded by the, the Roman historian Livy. I am a Roman, he said to the king. My name is Gaius Mucius. I came here to kill you, my enemy. I have as much courage to die as to kill. It is our Roman way to do and to, and to suffer bravely. Nor am I alone in my resolve against your life. Behind me is a long line of men eager for the same honor. Brace yourself, if you will, for the struggle. A struggle for your life from hour to hour with an armed enemy always at your door. That is the war we declare against you. You need fear no action in the battlefield, army against army. It will be fought against you alone, by one of us at a time. Porsena in rage and alarm ordered the prisoner to be burnt alive unless he at once divulged the plan thus obscured and hinted at, whereupon Mucius crying, See how cheap men hold their bodies when they care only for honor. And he thrust his right hand into the fire which had been kindled for a sacrifice and let it burn there as if he were unconscious of the pain. Porsena was so astonished by the young man's almost superhuman endurance that he leapt to his feet and ordered his guards to drag him from the altar. Go free, he said. You have dared to be a worse enemy to yourself than to me. And likewise with faithful Christians, we are also a worse threat to our own bodies than we are to any enemy. As it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? we worship by being living sacrifices, laying our own bodies upon the altar in our worship to the Lord. And likewise also, no matter how many faithful Christians that Satan convinces men to execute, more will eventually take their place and continue the fight. As Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, meanwhile, back in prison, verse 18, it says, There was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. Now, I'll say there was no small disturbance. The typical punishment for a guard who allowed his prisoner to escape was that they would be uh, punished with the, the, the same punishment that their prisoner was due to receive. So, so no small disturbance. I mean, they're looking around for Peter far more fervently than we'd be looking for lost car keys. These men that Herod had hand-selected to watch over Peter so he could be executed on this day are now going to be executed in Peter's place. It says when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, 
he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. So what we see is Herod is now killing his own men now. Things have totally reversed. He started killing the church, but now he's killing his own men. And the truth is that when you serve an ungodly leader, even if you've done nothing wrong worthy of punishment, don't be surprised if you get the brunt of the pain for his own foolish decisions. After executing his own soldiers, Herod decides to take a a vacation to Caesarea. And this brings us to the third movement in the book, in the chapter, in verse 20, where Herod is killed by an angel. While Peter, in his speech to the gathered Christians at Mark's home, goes out of his way to, to exalt the glory of God, showing it wasn't by his own ingenuity that he escaped, but solely by the power of God. Herod, in the speech that he gives on the rostrum here, seeks to bring all glory to himself. And the point of the whole spectacle, in fact, is that Herod is a self-worshipper. And we're given the context in verse 20. Knowing that Herod was angry with them, the people of Tyre and Sidon knew that they needed to regain his favor and be allowed back in his good graces. Their country was dependent upon Judea for food. And so they needed food, and so they needed to figure out what they could do to butter Herod up again. And so to allow this to happen and to to feed the king's ego, they were able to meet with Blastus, who was the king's chamberlain or servant. And he arranged for Herod to give a big speech in the rostrum. I want to pause for just a moment and just point out a remarkable coincidence here in the text. You might recall that the other servant that's named in this chapter was Rhoda, the young girl who interceded between Peter and the church. Her name Rhoda means rose. And the servant who intercedes between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon is named Blastus, which means bud. So the servants here that are mentioned are Rose and Bud. And when I saw that, I immediately thought of William Cooper's line from God Moves in a Mysterious Way that says, The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In fact, that's actually the point of the chapter. The church may have to face persecution, pain, and loss, but God is doing amazing things in the midst of it. And Josephus thoroughly described this, even thoroughly in his, in his history, this event. When the text said that Herod put on his royal apparel, it's actually a bit of an understatement. Because the robe that he was wearing was actually made entirely out of silver. And uh, Herod the Great, this Herod's grandfather, had actually built this rostrum where Herod's going to give his speech. So it would be filled with crowds. And not only that, it, it, looked, it, it faced the rising sun. And so Herod gave his speech at the dawn of the day as the crowds are waiting for this speech. As the sun was rising, it fell f- fully upon his glimmering robe and it looked like he was radiating light. This stunning costume accompanied with this stirring speech and a crowd of people desperate to please, 
led to the cries from them declaring the voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. And while Herod's eating up this blasphemy, an angel struck him so that he would be eaten by worms. So the same king who had withheld food from them ended up becoming food right before their very eyes. The praise of man is deadly. Herod's craving for the praise of men not only led to his death, but it actually drove him to grave injustice and even murder. This says in Proverbs 27:21, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. In fact, Jesus said to the to the glory-seeking Pharisees in John 5, how can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What Jesus is saying is you can't believe in Jesus and be drunk on self-glory. Faith is God-exalting and glory-seeking is self-exalting. The two can't go together. And as we see in this passage, God-exalting people pray together. They're obedient, even to the point of death. And they, they direct their praise to God, even in, even in their greatest successes. And they don't give up. Whereas those who are self-exalting are often unjust, cruel. They're manipulative and pompous. And their end will end in shame. So if you're seeking the praise of men, know that you're on a collision course with God. Herod's love for the praise of men, that's precisely what led him to pick this foolish fight with God. But as we see in this chapter, you can't fight with Christ and win. It would be safer for a mouse to pick a fight with a, ti- uh, uh, with a tiger. It's guaranteed to lose. And the upshot of this whole text is seen in verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. So Martin Luther was right. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness, your sovereign care. And Lord, we even, we even, as we praise you, we confess that we, we acknowledge we don't fully understand why you allow the wicked things to happen to us, like you allowed James to be executed, why you allow the apostles to be flogged. But we know that you do allow pain, but also that you promise to work all things for our good, and that the present suffering of this current life will yield to us a far greater eternal weight of glory that can't even be compared. So we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith so that as we do face temptation, as we face trials that don't make any sense to our finite minds, that we would hold fast to your word and give you glory in the evil day. We pray these things in Christ's name.